You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. You may feel as if your skeleton isn't doing much, but without it, you'd be a limp bag of protoplasm, unable to move. So hurrah for dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. But bones are more than just scaffolding. They archive information, even secrets, about our identity and our behavior. Forensic anthropologists put this to good use. You know, if you think about it, bones are internal, like blueprint. Everything is connected to them. So we are able to kind of read that. Why everything you do leaves a mark on your bones. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, if bones could talk, they would have a lot to say. Instead, we rely on scientists to interpret these silent secret keepers, from evolutionary biology to forensic anthropology to atomic physics. Find out how bones reveal the facts of who we are or were. They even shed light on the canine history that has led to a peculiar obsession of our pets. And once he's cracked that bone, that's where all the fun is, because the marrow is the really good stuff. This episode lays out the bare bones. We think of bones, if we think of them at all, only when they ache or when they're broken or when we confront some post-mortem remains. Hamlet, of course, famously reflected on the last. Here's a skull now. This skull has lain in the earth three and twenty years. Whose was it? This same skull, sir, was Yorick's skull, the king's jester. Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. Bones suffer from some unfortunate PR. Because they're associated with death and spooky things, we may not enjoy thinking about them. But bones may surprise you, because they're not simply rigid and inert. While you're living, they're living, made up of growing cellular tissue. Even a skeleton that has sloughed off its blood, skin, and muscle is not lifeless, in that it can bring alive the stories about who we were. Many scientists are trained to interpret those stories. 
Right. A lot of what we want to learn from a bone or from a skeleton really depends on what our perspective is, uh, how we're approaching it. So, for example, I have my background primarily in paleontology. I go looking for bones every summer that are you know, ancient, many of them from you know, the great age of dinosaurs like the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous. So when I find one of their bones, a single bone could tell me something about what sort of animal it was, what maybe species it was, uh, how large it was. And we can apply that to human skeletons as well. An anthropologist, for example, looking at a human bone uh, might be able to say something about, depending on the disposition of that bone, if it was buried with anything, uh, about the person it belonged to and the culture that they belonged to. Uh, you know, a doctor or a pathologist might look at a bone and be able to say something about someone's medical history. You know, even just someone who likes likes bones um, just because of the look of them uh, might come along and say, oh, I'd like to collect that and put that on my mantelpiece. It really kind of depends what our perspective is in terms of what information that we want to pull from our skeleton. Writing under the pen name Brian Sweetek, Riley Black's book is called Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone, and we put forth a challenge. Can you get us truly excited about bones and skeletons? I'm going to do my best. I mean, we're both using our skeletons right now. Uh, They might not feel like they're doing terribly much, but they're the anchor point for uh, so many of our muscles that we're moving. You know, even as I'm talking to you, that my jaw moving up and down, that I've got little bones inside my ear that help carry the vibration so I can hear you and talk back. Uh, So they're working overtime pretty much constantly, constantly responding to the world around them, even just in terms of growth, that there are little cells right now that are eating up old bone tissue, they're laying down uh, new bone tissue, that, you know, they're incredibly active and responsive, just as much as your skin or anything else in your body is. So, so I mean, they, they have as an active an existence as, I don't know, my liver or something? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would say uh, perhaps even more so because skeletons have some extra functions. It's not just that they're a particular organ that, you know, like the, your liver goes after sort of detoxifying things that you put in your body or regulating, you know, hormones or things like that. But uh, your skeleton not only provides your internal structure, but also protects many of your organs. That We have got our rib cage, for example, that surrounds many of our vital organs. That The whole reason that we have the posture that we do, that we stand upright in the way that we move, is because of the way our skeletons are, are laid out that our teeth, what we chew with in our, in our mouth, that's part of our skeleton as well. Uh, so really, it's probably the most multifaceted organ system in the body. You know, obviously bones last a long time. We dig up bones that are, you know, hundreds of millions of years old. That means they're pretty durable. Most things don't last for hundreds of millions of years if they're just buried in the earth. What What is bone? So bone in the most basic sense is a combination of two biological materials. There's collagen, which is the flexible part, that's a protein, and there's a mineral part called hydroxyapatite. And these are the two parts that come together to make bone both strong and relatively flexible and why it's so responsive. So, for example, if bone were just made out of collagen, um, or our our skeletons were, if it's much more like, say, the cartilage that's in a shark, or even the cartilage that's in the bridge of your nose, it'd be relatively flexible, but wouldn't really be great for, uh, you know, supporting our weight while moving around on land and many of the things that we do. If it was just hydroxyapatite, uh, it would be incredibly fragile and easy to break. So it's those two components together that help make bone responsive. And uh, our bony elements that are made of the tissue bone are laid out in such a way that's relatively porous. And that's how we're able to get you know bones that last for so many millions of years is because when those bones are buried, water carrying minerals is able to basically percolate through bones. There are spaces for that water to run through and leave the minerals behind 
behind replacing the original tissue and allow those bones to be fossilized. So that's just even after death, bones are incredibly uh, flexible and durable and able to withstand the ages because of their biological layout. Oh, it sounds as if bones are kind of the, I don't know, the eye beams of biology, except they sound like they're better than eye beams. I mean, when, when was bone invented? When did the first bone appear? Right. So this is an important point because skeletons and bones did not necessarily coincide with each other, that the skeleton came before the actual tissue bone. So when we talk about bone, there's bone in the tissue, and then there's the bony elements. So for example, your thigh bone, your femur is a bone, but it's also made of the tissue bone. So if we went back about 500 million years ago or so, there are animals, these little squiggly protovertebrate things that have a brain case and that have a notochord, the beginnings of a spinal column, that we could say have the beginnings of a skeleton. These little animals like Pacaya from the Burgess Shale. Um, but bone, as the tissue, hadn't appeared yet. That you know took about another 50 million years or so. And it started as a material called aspidin. Uh, so this is a precursor of bone that was almost like a biological cement. So it wasn't as responsive as our skeletons are today. It was almost more like teeth, that it basically just accreted this hard material over time. But once bodies started to mineralize certain parts and started to get this external armor, which is how bone got its beginning, then that could basically be translated into different parts of the skeleton and become internalized. So so the skeleton appeared first, but the tissue bone or a mineralized skeleton came millions and millions of years later. So those two things were decoupled in evolutionary time. You talk about Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis, as uh, you know the connection between our primate ancestors and us. What was remarkable about her skeleton, or was it just like a modern Homo sapiens? So it wasn't just like mo a modern Homo sapiens skeleton. There are certain aspects of Lucy's skeleton of her relatives that you can look at uh, that immediately jump out as being differentiated. You know, when you're looking at it with that view, for example, she didn't really have a forehead like we do. The brain expansion that happened about two million years ago amongst uh, you know our Homo erectus ancestors hadn't happened yet. Uh, she didn't really have much of a chin. But some of the biggest changes in why Lucy is significant is that Lucy and other Australopithecus afarensis skeletons exist at this hinge point in history where the upper body is still relatively adapted to life in the trees. So the arms of these hominins are relatively long. Their finger bones are relatively curved. Their uh, rib cages are relatively funnel-shaped. So they would have had something of a gut because they're still eating mostly plant material. So very much um, like you would see in a modern-day chimpanzee. But looking at the lower body and looking at the spine in particular, everything is about upright walking. So you have this upper body that's very much adapted still to life in the trees. But the lower body, the legs are very pillar-like. They're straight underneath the body. The spine and the hips are modified to hold all that viscera that they're carrying around upright. Uh, the foot, in particular, the big toe, instead of jutting out sideways for grasping, is more in line with the rest of the foot for that big push-off with each step. So you have, you know, in these prehistoric humans, the sort of uh, nexus point between the ancestry from life in the trees and this new thing of walking around upright on the ground all the time. But we have carried over some uh, arboreal abilities, have we not? I mean, you, you mentioned, for example, the fact that we can move our hands in ways that uh, other creatures like, you know, your dog and so forth can't do. And that flexibility has given us some special opportunities. Maybe you could elaborate. Absolutely. So one of the things that we owe to our uh, ancient arboreal ancestors is the placement of our shoulder blade. And, you know, this is why it's relatively easy to dislocate our shoulders because they're placed over our back. But when you think about how the shoulder blade is attached to the rest of the body, there is no very solid 
connection there. So you've got your shoulder blade that has a cup in it that receives the head of your upper arm bone or your humerus. And then there's another attachment point there for your clavicle. And it's the clavicle that reaches over from that little point on the shoulder blade, goes across the front on the top of your rib cage, and then attaches to the very top on this little point at the top of your sternum. So basically, this really critical appendage, you know, our arms, which have unlocked so much for us, is only attached to the body by this, you know, relatively small point. But that gives us a flexibility to do everything from, you know, swing a hammer to throw a baseball to play the violin to, you know, so many things that we do that other animals just biomechanically cannot. So uh, like you mentioned in my book, I talk about my dog, a, a German Shepherd, where, you know, when I want him to give me five, you know, to shake my hand, or really when we tell any dog to shake, uh, they're not shaking our hands like we human shake hands, that we have to put our hand out flat because his skeleton, the skeleton of all dogs, are adapted for endurance running. They're descended from wolves, after all. So the arms have a very forward and back motion, but not a lot of side to side or twisting motions. So we have to make it easy for them to give us you know, a shake or give us five, whereas for us, we're capable of all sorts of different motions. And this has to do with something that you know, a writer and essayist and uh, paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould often wrote about uh, called contingency of you know, these little differences that would have allowed history to unfold in a different way. So if our shoulder blade placement had been different, uh, you know, the way that we do everything from play sports to the architecture we create might be very different. Well, coming back uh, to the, uh, the bare bones facts of bones, we seem to display a morbid fascination with skeletons. Maybe you could tell me the strangest or maybe most extreme example of this that uh, you've uncovered. So there is a particular site in England, a particular cave that, that comes to mind that's you know from the Ice Age, so it's over 12,000 years old. In fact, it's quite a bit uh, older than that. I think it's on the order of 200,000 years old or so, where the oldest skull cups have been made. So these are cups that were made out of human skulls, and there's a hypothesis that uh, there might have been some cannibalism involved um, as well based upon the way uh, the markings that are left on these. But, uh, you know, for some reason, there's just something about the human skull that makes people want to drink out of it over and over again. This is something that cultures have invented and reinvented over and over again uh, throughout the world. And, you know, even now that, you know, I don't think there's as much, you know, drinking from people's skulls as there used to be, which is probably a good thing. But uh, there's still this market for um, human skulls and, and human bones, you know, as things of decoration or as this sort of memento mori that people can carry around or transform in other forms of art. So there's something that, you know, even though we think of skeletons as being, you know, these dead things that, you know, they don't change anymore. With skulls in particular, there's still so much personality that comes through in the just the bare biology of that bone that uh, we're just endlessly fascinated. We do ritualize how we treat bones after death. I, I recall vividly going into the catacombs under Paris and, you know, just seeing stacks of skulls and stacks of femurs. I'm, I'm not even sure what bones they were. This ritualization, is it just honoring the dead? Is that all there is to it or is there something more? Uh, sometimes there's something more. So many of these places that you can go and visit, these great ossuaries, you know, especially in churches in Europe, um, that you're able to go and visit. In some places, the bones are just stacked. In other places, the bones are you know, strung up sort of like uh, you know, really macabre Christmas garlands from like Tim Burton's you know, house or something like that. It was mostly about space. It was the fact that you know, even though we might not reproduce you know, as quickly as rabbits do, we still reproduce relatively rapidly. A lot of churchyards would run out of space in, in their graveyards. So uh, people would be exhumed and their skeletons would basically be you know, arranged in a different way to just to make more room for 
you know, the next generation of parishioners who, who lived in that area. So it was sort of art and spirituality and just a function of saving space all wrapped into one. Brian Sweetek, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Oh, this has been fun. Thank you. Riley Black, under the pen name Brian Sweetek, is the author of Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. Even the cleverest criminal may leave tiny clues behind in his victim's bones. Forensic anthropology is the study of contemporary human remains in a medical legal context, so anything that addresses issues of the law. How to read bones and solve cold cases next. We're laying it all out in Bare Bones on Big Picture Science. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bones retained long-held secrets that, when revealed, can clear up mysteries about identity, behavior, even the perpetrators of crimes, which is why you might hear forensic anthropology referred to as the science of talking bones. Everything we do while we're alive leaves a mark on the bones or a biological history. Anne Ross is a forensic anthropologist at North Carolina State University, and she's also a national expert in human remains. Using novel techniques, some which she developed herself, she can determine a victim's age, weight, height, even the mineral content of their drinking water, all from their bones. But your bones are constantly remodeling. We even know, like, your whole skeleton can turn over every eight to 10 years. She has helped identify murder victims and casualties of war and has sometimes been able to attach names to anonymous skeletal remains. In 1996, she went to Bosnia to help identify victims of the genocide in that country. Today, she and her colleagues have a contract to do forensic anthropology for the chief medical examiner at the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And if we were to visit your lab right now, what would we see? As you walk in the main door, there is a x-ray room. There is an evidence control room. Towards the back, there are two fume hoods. And we use those fume hoods because a lot of the times everybody thinks that, hey, it's like, you know, the show bones where you just get skeletons and dry bones. A lot of the times we get remains with a lot of soft tissue, advanced decomposition, all kinds of types of different stages of the decomposition process that we actually have to macerate so we can reduce the remains to bone. You will see four tables that are large enough to be able to 
lay a set of human remains in anatomical position. Anne, are there any bones in your lab right now? Yes, we have four active cases right now in the lab, and we also curate uh, skeletal remains for the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Now, you are an expert in decoding bones, if you will, and I would imagine that once the bones are, are laid out of a victim, um, you are looking for things that the casual observer would miss or would not even know to look for. Can you just give me an idea right. of what you look for when you first see those bones laid out in front of you? Well, the first thing, you know, part of our standard operating procedures are to estimate biological sex because a lot of our other parameters, such as age at death, stature, or living height, are all sex-specific. Then we try to assess population affinity or, you know, potential ancestral origin of the individuals, for example, Mesoamerica, European American, as such. You look at whether there are any taphonomic variables, whether they were scavenged, and then we literally go bone by bone with a magnifying glass. Wait, what's a taphonomic difference? Well, the definition of taphonomy is everything that happens to a body after death until the time of discovery. So that could be, let's say they were in a stream, right? And you'll have marks of water and pebbles. They were scavenged by coyotes. They were scavenged by raccoons. You know, they have, uh, for example, they were exposed to the sunlight. Are they bleached? You can tell whether they were in kind of a surface burial, depending on the coloring of the bone, all those types of things. So it sounds like your job is to figure out what's happened to the bone since the time of death, but also to understand what the bone is telling us about how that person lived and maybe even where they lived. Correct. And a lot of times we provide an opinion as to, let's say, if it's trauma, we provide an opinion as to how that person died. Mm -hmm. But what I'm getting at here is that there's something about bones as secret keepers, <laughs> if you will. Yes. What is it about bones? Why are they able to hold all of this information about who we are and, and what happened to us? Is it just the nature of the bone itself? What is it? Well, you know, um, when we die, we decompose, right? And we lose all of our soft tissues. Bones can remain and stick around for a while, depending on, you know, the environmental conditions that they're in. And, you know, if you think about it, bones are our internal, like, blueprint, right? Everything is connected to them. So everything that we move, our muscles, our, you know, activities, it actually makes it change in size and shape. So we are able to kind of read that. I read about one case where you did a chemical analysis on the bone and you were able to assess the kind of water the deceased had been drinking. And then from that, <laughs> you were able to figure out where in the country that person lived. Yes, actually, that's a, that's a very recent type of tool that forensic anthropologists are using, and they're using water to get the oxygen out. So you can tell, like, they, different parts of the world, depending on the water table and, you know, the atmosphere and rain and all of that, you have water signatures. And then you can also use, you use stable and non-stable isotopes that 
uh, we call it geolocation. So you can try to estimate the probability of an individual coming from a certain part of the world. So it's really hard to conceal much from a forensic anthropologist. <laughs> yeah, we have actually some pretty interesting tools nowadays. We've come a long way. Well, I wonder if you could give us an example of how your study of bones provided key information that either identified a victim or that solved a crime, how it was the bone itself and your analysis of it that turned up that missing puzzle piece. Mm -hmm. Yes, we, I think it was 2010, maybe 2011, worked on the Grant Hayes case where the victim was murdered and she was dismembered and driven to Texas. Then she was discovered in Texas and the remains were brought back. A year later, they found her tibia and the detectives found a receipt for a specific tool that Grant Hayes had purchased from Walmart, I believe where he found, you know, he spent a lot of time selecting the reciprocating saw and the blades and all of that. They have him on video at like three o'clock in the morning. So they went and purchased exactly what was on that receipt. So we decided to test that tool on a pig proxy, right? We used a limb bone from a pig to test the tool, and then we compared it microscopically under um, a digital microscope and compared it to the victim mark or the mark that was left on the victim. Oh my goodness, you had to use a microscope to see how it had damaged or how it had left its mark on the bone? Yes, because you look at the cross sections and the implement or the tools that you use leave specific striations. You know, Grant had purchased two different types of blades, and we were able to assess which blade was consistent with the marks that we saw on the victim. And he probably, at the time, thought he was being very clever, as every murderer, <laughs> many murderers think that right. they are. Um, and they're right. going to outwit the detectives and the forensic anthropologists, not knowing that they're leaving these minuscule traces of their behavior. Exactly. And again, I would like to, you know, state what a multidisciplinary effort this is, right? There is no way I, we would have ever figured it out if the detectives hadn't done their job, you know, by finding all of these pieces of evidence to begin with. Was he found guilty of killing his, it was his wife, right? Yes. I'm not sure if they were common law wife, but yes, his, his ex-wife. Yes, he, he got life in jail, life in prison, no possibility of parole. Well, finally, Anne, um, I'm hoping that you are admiring my restraint at not referring to the name of any television show with forensic <laughs> anthropologists during the course of this interview, um, because I bet that does come up in every interview that you do. But I wonder, uh, this is your chance to say a word or two about what the popular depiction of forensic anthropology, what it gets wrong. Anything you want to get off your chest about that? Well, I can tell you right now, I wish we had one. We don't have a hologram that can tell us how the homicide happened. Okay, so no hologram yet. No holograms yet. Maybe in the future, who knows, right? Well, Anne Ross, thank you so much for sharing your science and your laboratory with us today. Thank you so much. Ann Ross is a forensic anthropologist and a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University.
another story about how the past can be found deep within our bones. It's about a new technique that allows scientists to determine radiation exposure within them. Our assistant producer, geologist Sarah Derwin, joins us to tell the story. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Molly. You came across some research that was quite intriguing to you. Can you give us the overview of what it is? So I was attending the recent Geological Society of America annual meeting on Zoom, And I heard a fascinating talk from a public health expert. He and his colleagues came up with a method for detecting lifetime radiation exposure in people. My name is uh, Doug Briggy. I am a professor and chair of the Department of Public Health Sciences at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. And he has a personal connection to the research he presented. Uh, In the 1960s and early 70s, I grew up as one of a small number of white families on the Navajo Reservation in northern Arizona. I knew nothing about uranium mining, but it it turns out it was going on, not close to where I was, but in areas not far away. And that generation of miners was affected terribly, as it turns out. The Navajo people who were affected by the uranium mining were the miners themselves, Sarah, or the people who lived close to the mines? Well, it is the miners themselves, but it's also the people who live in the community. Mining is dirty and dusty. You have to blast rock, haul it, process it. You know, these miners would come home covered from head to toe with dust and yellow uranium ore. So it's really, really messy. So there's uranium ore everywhere. Yeah, it is. And, you know, as a geologist, I can speak from experience. When you're out in the field and you come home for the day, that dust gets everywhere. And it's the same thing for miners. But the important thing to remember is that uranium decays and decays into many other elements. Well, uranium is a very special element. I mean, it's one of a a small percentage of elements that are radioactive, which means that they do something uh, remarkable. uh, That is, they release radiation and they change from one element into a different element. And along the way, one of them is radium, which is a solid radioactive element. And radium does something even more unusual, which is it decays into radon, which is a gas. And Molly, we actually skipped a couple of steps. There's thorium and protactinium, too. But even when it gets to radon, it's not done yet. It still decays. Radon itself decays into a whole series of other elements that are radioactive called radon daughters. And those are solids. So now you've got a gas up in the air. It decays into a solid. The solid sticks onto some particles, and then if you're extremely unfortunate, you breathe in those particles, and now those radon daughter products are in your lungs, giving off radiation and damaging the cells and tissues uh, nearby. So it sounds like people can get radiation exposure in a number of ways along that decay path. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, we'll get back to radon gas in a moment. But, you know, let's talk about the phase right before radon, and that's radium. And we know how damaging radium can be. So in his talk, Dr. Briggy told an incredible story about the radium girls, and they painted watch dials with glow-in-the-dark radium paints. 
Ah, that's right. They were contracted by the military to do the painting on these watch dials so that soldiers in the dark trenches could look at their watches but not draw attention to themselves. Yeah, exactly. And as you can imagine, this took great precision. So these young women would take the paintbrushes, put them in their mouths to make a nice fine point, and in the process they would ingest quite a large amount of radium. Dr. Briggy showed a slide that was a cross-section of a femur, that's the upper leg bone, from one of these women who had died of cancer. And it was, Molly, it was just astounding. What it shows in an autoradiograph is the radiation embedded in her bone. And the reason for that is that radium, like uranium, uh, seeks out bone and deposits there. Then once it's there, it's just going to stay forever, basically. The image itself was striking. It was black and white, spotted bone, and the black was actually where the radium replaced the calcium within the femur. So radium is incredibly poisonous. Do the radium girls and the poisoning that they experience give us an idea of the level of exposure that the Navajo uranium ore miners would have experienced in the 1950s through the 1960s? Well, radium girls and the miners are sort of on one end of the spectrum. They both had very high levels of exposure. But Dr. Briggy is concerned with those on the lower end of the spectrum, those who live near mines and have lower but lifetime exposures to uranium ores. We have a particular interest in community exposures because those are harder to document. The level of exposure that people had who maybe live near a mine or were the relatives and lived in the home of a miner who might have brought it home with them. Those kinds of people, it's hard to reconstruct uh, how much their exposure was. So what he and his colleagues want to do is to find a way to accurately measure the lifetime amount of radiation. It was really his solution that I found so novel. And this is where the radon, remember, a decay product that happens to be gas, comes into play. So if you're exposed to uranium ore, and that would include radium, and some of that has gotten into your body, whether it's inhaled or ingested, and some of that has further deposited in your bones. That radium is, in terms of its radiological properties, the same as if it was in the soil. It's going to decay slowly into radon. So some of that radium that's in your bones is going to decay into radon. That radon is a, is a noble gas. It's going to get into your blood. Some of the radon that gets into your blood It's going to make it to the lungs, and some of that, in turn, is going to be exhaled in your breath. So the idea is to measure the amount of radon that is exhaled out of a person's breath and then back calculate how much radium must be in their bones based on that. So the idea here, Sarah, is that you measure the amount of radon gas that is coming from your bones and you're exhaling through your breath? Yeah, it's essentially a breathalyzer for radiation. And he and his colleagues have already built a prototype. Basically, the person breathes into this instrument, it concentrates the air, and then there is a highly sensitive radiation detector that can measure tiny, tiny amounts. And then we measure what they exhale. So this would be a very sensitive instrument, as he indicates, if it's going to measure the amount of gas that is coming from your bones and traveling through your body and then coming out through your breath. Um, I would imagine that an instrument like this, a breathalyzer, has a lot of advantages. And the goal really is to have it be portable, economical, and very, very sensitive so it can measure these tiny amounts of radon in community exposure levels. Oh, my gosh. So... You're able to get tested for the amount of radiation exposure that you might have experienced while living in one of these communities. But Sarah, how would that help people now? 
You know, there's a lot of uncertainty in not knowing if you've been exposed or not. So if you get tested and you haven't been exposed, that's great. But if you have, knowing this information can help you make health decisions, assess community risk, you know, really make informed decisions on your own health. And do we know yet what the metric is for the amount of exposure that you might have had decades ago and then the amount of radon gas coming out of your bones? Do we have a correlation yet? You know, I don't have those calculations myself, but the researchers have worked out the correlation. I would assume that this radon breathalyzer would have applications outside the U.S., really anywhere where mining is going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uranium mining has happened all over the world and in some places is still continuing to happen. Dr. Briggy and his colleagues are working with scientists globally to get this technology to communities that might have been exposed to uranium. Sarah, that's a fascinating bit of research. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. Doug Briggy is a professor and chair of the Department of Public Health Sciences at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Sarah Derwin is an assistant producer at Big Picture Science. Coming up, why do dogs love to chew on bones? Well, the answer might surprise you. The dog can get a good deal of nutritional supplement by getting down to the bone marrow or by scraping up enough of the bone which has bone grease in it. This episode is The Bare Bones on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I can think of one group whose members need no convincing that bones are endlessly fascinating. How about Chew? As dog owners know, trying to pull a bone from the clamped jaw of your pooch is a losing tug of war. Dogs love their bones. They love burying them and chewing on them, which is something they can do for hours. Why is this? Well, this discussion is about to go to the dogs. Expert Stanley Corrin, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of British Columbia, Dr. Corrin is the author of many books about canine behavior, including Why Does My Dog Act That Way? As for so many hard-to-understand behaviors, there is an evolutionary reason. So, Stanley, when a dog gets a bone, uh, that hound will sometimes run off and bury it and could spend minutes doing so. What's going on there? Is it simply hoarding for a, you know, a rainy day, a future time when it might have a yearn to chew? That's left over from when uh, our dogs were uh, wild canines, wolves or whatever else. If you took something which you couldn't eat completely at that point in time, 
if you laid it down, some other member of the pack was going to pick it up and eat it. So what you did is you skittered away from the group who was all eating it. And if you couldn't finish it, you buried it, not very deep, sometimes just under some leaves or that sort of thing, with the presumption that you would come back in a short time, probably an hour or so. This is just a behavior that they inherited from their wolf-like ancestors then because they were in packs. And possession was all nine points of the law. So if you had it, nobody would go after it. But you laid it down, turned your head, walked three steps away from it, then anybody in the pack could grab it. There may be some people who have not seen a dog chew a bone. How would you describe that? Well, there's actually two stages. In the early stages, the dog will generally use his canines, the big fang-shaped teeth, and the uh, little incisors beside them to scrape at the bone. And so they'll scrape and you'll see bits and pieces of the bone sort of coming off and the dog eating those. But if he can actually get the whole bone into his mouth, or at least part of the bone into his mouth, what he's trying to do is to get it all the way into the back, uh, where there are the big heavy molars. And then he can exert a lot of pressure and crack that bone. And once he's cracked that bone so that the bone marrow is, is exposed, that's where all the fun is. I mean, then he's going to worry at that bone marrow until you've actually got a hollow bone because the marrow is the really good stuff. But what's motivating the bone chewing? You got to understand where this whole fascination with bones arrived. You know, when, when times get tough, the uh, animals, the prey animals, which the ancestors of dogs uh, uh, fed on, would have very little vegetation and wouldn't develop very much in the way of fat. And fat is really important in terms of nutrition. And uh, if you eat protein only, you know, you could eat pounds of it and, and still not feel satisfied and still not meet your nutritional needs. Now, wait, wait a minute. What are you saying there? You're saying that if I get the really lean steak at the supermarket with, with no marbling, uh, maybe that won't sustain me? That will not be as satisfying as if you get the grade A steak, which has the marbling in it. No. But anyway... Let's consider the following situation. We have the wild ancestors of dogs out hunting, and it's either early in the spring or deep in the winter, so there's not a lot of foraging around. And the animals which they're hunting, the deer or bison or whatever else, um, have not been faring very well. So their uh, meat is very lean. It doesn't have very much in the way of fat. So if the dog wants to have the, the maximum nutrition, he wants to get some fat out of this beast, which is very skinny. And the fat is basically uh, most available in the bone marrow. Bone marrow is 60% fat. And in addition to that, there's something which we call bone grease. So the dog can get a good deal of nutritional supplement by getting down to the bone marrow or by scraping up enough of the bone which has bone grease in it. Okay, so Stan, if I understand the story so far, what you're saying is the dog ancestors, and after all, dogs haven't been around, I guess, that long, right? They were domesticated maybe 15,000 years ago. I, I know there's some you know, controversy about that. But back in the day, their ancestors 
who might be foraging for a meal in the winter or the fall or even the early spring when their prey were not very fatty. They'd get meat, but they wouldn't get that important fat, and the bones could supply that. But also bone grease, that that's kind of an interesting term. It sounds like if I have a you know, a bad knee. Maybe I could just rub some bone grease on it. But so that's in the the bony part of the bone, if you will, not the center. Um, bound to the calcium and that sort of thing. The reason it's called bone grease is because, you know, if you take a, a bone and you boil it, you know, you, you, it just looks like your regular old bone. But of course, you end up getting this huge scum of uh, grease on the top of the uh, fluid, which you're boiling it in. And it's also what makes the bones slippery and that sort of thing. Now, we're talking about raw bones here. I mean, I think there's something which which people should really watch out for. I mean, if my talking about, you know, the nutritional value of bones to dogs, and we're not even yet talking about the, the, the joy that it gives to the dogs, uh, and you want to go give your dog a bone, you don't give him a cooked bone. Because if you've cooked the bone, you've first of all sweat out uh, most of the bone grease. And second of all, you may have mel melted out most of the bone marrow. And third of all, what remains is then very brittle. And that can do your dog harm. So we're talking about raw bones here. And the intensity with which they chew these bones? They will work at them for hours. I mean, it's one of the ways, if you have a dog who has separation anxiety, you should go out to your butcher shop and get a bunch of those soup bones, um, have them cut it up into two or three inch lengths, throw them in your freezer. And when you walk out of the house, you don't have to defrost it, just toss a bone to the dog. The dog, you know, even those who are most anxious will run over and start to chew on the bone. It'll be two or three hours before they get around to recognizing that you're no longer there. And by that time, they're very satisfied and quiet. And so you've solved the problem. Okay. But, you know, people might say, well, I mean, I don't understand this behavior anymore because after all, my dog is well fed. I buy the best brand dog food or whatever. They don't, they don't need that bone grease. They don't need that marrow. But I assume that since dogs are kind of a, a new invention in a way, they are just programmed to like the bones. Well, I mean, you know, look at it this way, you know, you may be well fed and meeting all of your nutritional needs. And then somebody offers you a piece of chocolate or maybe a slice of pecan pie. And, you know, <laughs> it's not nutritionally necessary at that point, but it just makes you feel good. And it's, it, it you know, it's part of the game that evolution plays. Okay. If things are good for you, or necessary for the survival of your species, like eating or sex or whatever else, evolution makes it pleasurable. So, yeah, I mean, you know, your dog isn't starving to death or that sort of thing, but he's, his tongue hits that fat-containing material, and his brain says, oh, yeah, this is nice stuff. And, and what about humans? We're at least partially carnivores, and I, I don't chew on bones terribly much. No, but you probably take in a lot of fat in other places. I mean, you know, one of the things which people seem to overlook when they're looking at alternative uh, dietary styles is that uh, for somebody who is a vegan or a vegetarian, they tend to 
use a lot of oils in their cooking and that sort of thing. And those oils, I mean, they're just basically fat and they take the place of the fat, which you would get if you were consuming the meat. You know, okay. I, I understand the evolutionary reasons for dogs chewing bones, but what about giving your dog a, a chew toy like you could buy at a pet shop, which is, as far as I can tell, just a little bit of leather or something, and throw that down on the floor, and they'll go after that, too. Is that just, you know, they can't tell the difference uh, behaviorally? In part, it's generalization. I mean, you know, the same thing which had caused the dog so much happiness, chewing. But very often, in order to get the dog to uh, destroy that toy, you have to do other things. You have to put a squeaker in it, for example. And then the dog decides that his mission for the day is to unearth the source of that noise. And he will destroy your toy, you know, in a couple of hours. In the same way that chewing gum in humans provides no nutrition. But many people find it comforting to to chew a piece of gum. All right. Well, finally, Stanley, what, what about the phrase, I've got a bone to pick with you? Does that come from this behavior? <laughs> no, I think that uh, as far as I know, I've got a bone to pick with you comes from the fact that when you were eating large animals, you know, like piece of cow or pig or whatever else, the um, best meat was supposed to be the meat around the bone. And so people would always grab at the haunches and that sort of thing. My mother, who would often say that to me, you know, I've got a bone to pick with you. That meant you had done something that she didn't approve of, and she wanted to complain about something. And I don't really get the tie there. That's right. It's like a lot of these things. They, they had one meaning to begin with, and they, it started to shift. You can't tell when the word is going to turn around and bite you in the tail. <laughs> yeah, for your fat. <laughs> Well, Stanley Corrin, thanks so very much for speaking with us, and I'll certainly uh, chew over some of the insights you provided about the behavior of dogs. Woof. <laughs> Stanley Corrin is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of British Columbia and the author of many books about canine behavior, including Why Does My Dog Act That Way? That is it for our show, Bare Bones. And now, what are the bare bones? Seth, what's the big picture here? Well, there are a lot of pictures here. Not even sure which one is the biggest. You know, I always thought of bones as kind of uninteresting, just a skeleton making red and white blood cells and that sort of thing. But, you know, the skeleton is an organ. It's an organ, and it does all sorts of stuff. And it not only does all that stuff, but it completely replaces itself every eight years. Right. So it's more than scaffolding. It's actually living. Um, and it retains all these secrets about us, about how we lived and where we lived and even how we died. And we heard how scientists can use our bones to decode how we lived. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of lugubrious to say it, but they will be all that's left of me, you know, 100 years from now. But not just that, also 100 million years from now. You know, I'm kind of grateful for bones because otherwise we'd never know about the dinosaurs. Do you think people will be studying your bones 100 million years from now? Probably not mine, no. <laughs> and it was fun to hear the evolutionary reasons why dogs adore bones. Yes, yes. I, I just thought it was, you know, I don't know, it reminded them of <laughs> bringing down some prey, but that isn't it at all. It's just to supplement their diet. And, you know, it's a hardwired behavior. So they do it even if they don't need the supplement.
Well, we could not do the show without the deeply embedded talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and intern Frida Cryer. Thanks to them all. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the habitats of other planets. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Bare Bones. If you'd like to hear this episode again or past episodes, well, just visit our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You will find a list there to the guests you've heard as well. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.